Section 7 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, King and Emperor, Part 1. At the age of 18, the boy of Sicily had crossed northern Italy, stealing furtively by night from town to town with his handful of followers, dependent upon friendly cities for protection and escort, braving constant perils from men in the hardships of the alpine snows. He returned, at the age of twenty-six, in royal state, the most powerful and popular sovereign of Christendom, with many of the mightiest prelates and princes of Germany in his train. Among them were the archbishops of Mainz and Ravenna, the patriarch of Aquileia, the bishops of Metz, Passau, Trent, Brixen, and Augsburg, the Duke of Bavaria, the Count Palatine, the Margrave of Hohenburg, and the Duke of Spoleto. Ambassadors from the great cities of Italy flocked to his camps. From Apulia came the Counts of Celano, San Severino, and Aquila. Padua, Verona, Venice, Genoa, Como, Pisa, and Faenza sent their deputies to gain his favor or to follow him to his coronation at Rome. Milan, of course, held sullenly aloof from any sign of welcome to the head of the detested Hohenstaufen race. The eight years of Frederick's absence in Germany had been spent by the cities of northern Italy in abusing their liberty in their customary manner. City warred against city, faction against faction. Milan and Parma had turned their rancor against the church and had expelled the prelates and seized their goods. Frederick had not a strong enough force with him to commence a general chastisement of the unruly towns, and he was anxious to reach Rome. He accordingly passed on his way southward, adjudicating such differences as were brought before him and remedying the wrongs of the church wherever he encountered them. To certain cities he showed a special favor. Genoa, which had helped him eight years before with her galleys and had entertained him for two months, received an extension of territory and a charter of privileges, but was not altogether contented with such liberality. Pisa, on the other hand, which had displayed enmity against him in his former adventure, received grants which attached her loyalty to Frederick's cause throughout his life. In November of the year 1220, the young Hohenstaufen arrived at Rome, and on the 22nd of that month he was crowned emperor in the ancient basilica of St. Peter, among the universal acclamations of his German and Sicilian followers, the Italian deputies, and the populace of Rome. The popes were accustomed to exact certain marks of humility at the coronation of an emperor, and we can be sure that Frederick was not released from these ceremonies. He kissed the foot of the pope and presented his shaven chin to receive a return of the salutation. He underwent a catechism in his religious beliefs. He held the stirrup of the pontiff and rode behind him in procession through the city. He sat at the Pope's right hand during the coronation banquet. The religious ceremony in the cathedral must have been singularly impressive. Surrounded by a glittering company of princes and prelates and nobles, in their gorgeous robes or burnished armor, 
himself clad in priestly white, Frederick received from the hands of the Vicar of Christ the insignia of the Holy Roman Empire. The cross, the sword, the scepter, the lance, the golden apple surmounted by a cross, were handed to him one by one. The gem-encrusted golden diadem was placed upon his head and then upon the head of the Empress Constance. High mass was then performed, and while the lighted candles were quenched and the altar plunged in gloom, the curse of God was pronounced upon all heretics. Frederick then took the cross from the hands of the Cardinal Ugolino, who was in later years to become Pope Gregory IX, and vowed to sail to the Holy Land in the following August. After the coronation, the Pope received further evidence of the Emperor's gratitude and goodwill. Frederick confirmed the grant of those territories which he had ceded to Innocent III in 1213, and ordered the cities of the various provinces to transfer their allegiance from himself to the Pope. He then issued nine edicts in favor of the Church and for the suppression of heresy, which was at that time very prevalent, especially in northern Italy. All laws, customs, and usages employed by cities, communities, or rulers, which were derogatory to the liberties of ecclesiastics, or in discord with the laws of the church and the empire, were annulled. The continued practice of such usages was to be punished by heavy fines. Persistent offenders were to be deprived of all their possessions. Churches and churchmen were to be immune from taxation and amenable in matters of jurisdiction only to their own courts. All heretics were placed under the ban of the empire and pronounced incapable of holding honors or offices. Their goods were confiscated, their abettors prosecuted, and their persons sentenced to various pains and penalties. For, runs the edict, outrages against the Lord of heaven are more heinous than those against a temporal lord. Other laws of a more general character were included in the edicts, prohibiting the plunder of wrecks and protecting pilgrims and the cultivators of the soil. Frederick stayed for some weeks in the neighborhood of Rome and transacted a vast amount of business, sending forth promulgations to every part of Germany and Italy, appointing vicars to various portions of his dominions. He departed for his southern kingdom early in December. His meeting with Honorius had passed without any unpleasant references to the separation of the empire and the kingdom, or to the election of the young Henry. Pope and emperor, in spite of minor differences, parted on excellent terms. We do not think, wrote Honorius, that ever Pope of Rome loved emperor more heartily than we love you, as we hope to prove to you with God's help hereafter. Frederick found his kingdom of Sicily in a sad state of confusion. During his minority, he had been powerless to exert his authority over the mainland, though he had reduced the island to some degree of order. Innocent III, as feudal lord of the realm, had, it is true, made efforts to subjugate Apulia. But where he had succeeded, the result had not been to Frederick's advantage. The Pope had appointed his own creatures to whatever territories he had subdued, and these paid little respect to the royal authority. Matters had not improved greatly during the young king's absence in Germany. 
the nobles whether descendants of the old norman invaders or german adventurers who had obtained grants from frederick's father or creatures of the papacy had rent the land with their private wars built unlicensed castles and seized fresh estates for themselves the lower classes suffered from the quarrels and oppression of their superiors and looked eagerly forward to the coming of one who if report spoke truly was likely to restore to them the blessings of peace certainly the emperor was not minded to suffer in his hereditary kingdom the state of things that he was compelled to accept in germany the independence and exorbitant power of the great german nobles which had become too firmly established for him to overthrow and which must have fretted his proud spirit grievously was probably one of the reasons that induced him to adopt his southern kingdom as his chosen abode here he might hope to enjoy an absolute and untrammelled authority and he immediately set to work to bring about this desirable end the task was to prove a longer one than he anticipated the first instrument for the subjugation of the nobles was the foundation of a new tribunal in the city of capua called the capuan court a general inquisition similar to the later statute quo warranto of our english king edward i was established into the titles by which nobles churchmen and corporations held their lands and privileges the death of frederick's maternal grandfather king william the good was fixed as the latest date previous to which titles were recognized as unquestionably valid all charters granted since that date were open to the suspicion of having been bestowed either by tancred the usurper by the various german adventurers who had struggled for the regency of the kingdom during frederick's childhood by otto during his invasion or by innocent the third they were consequently subjected to a rigid examination all nobles who did not send in their charters to the court for revision before a certain date were held to have forfeited their honours the result of the inquisition was that many nobles and ecclesiastics were deprived of all or a portion of their illegally acquired territories many fearing chastisement for their past misdeeds fled from this unpleasantly energetic monarch to rome whereas frederick complained they were too warmly welcomed by the pope a system of taxation was also commenced from which the clergy were not immune frederick also commenced to interfere in elections to vacant bishoprics and to banish or imprison refractory prelates such high-handed conduct naturally called forth an indignant protest from honorius who reminded the emperor of the compact made by his mother constance with innocent but frederick was determined to maintain the royal authority and to rescue it from the decrepitude into which it had fallen he replied that he was not bound by a treaty which had been entered into by a woman he complained that innocent had made havoc with the royal power during his minority and he recalled the old privileges of the sicilian kings how long he haughtily inquired will the pope abuse my patience what bound will be set to his ambition he begins to despise the majesty of the emperor i would rather lay down the crown than lessen my authority the work commenced at capua continued for seven and a half years slowly but surely frederick gathered the scattered fragments of the royal power into his hands and welded them into despotism 
the lawless nobles of Apulia were controlled with a vigorous severity, and the great ecclesiastics were chastised as impartially as their lay brethren. The emperor was determined to restore order throughout his kingdom, and such order could not be enforced if the king's only means of securing redress from ecclesiastical turbulence was a complaint to the biased tribunal of St. Peter. We can hardly blame him for refusing to recognize a treaty which emasculated the royal authority and which had been wrung from his distressed and friendless mother by a hard and unscrupulous pope. No man, runs the preamble of a charter, dares now to put his trust in iniquity. We will introduce justice into all things subject to us. The justice was necessarily of a harsh and somewhat barbarous kind, and was enforced against powerful offenders with the aid of the sword. Criminals were broken on the wheel or mutilated. There was no room for sentimental humanitarianism in medieval Italy. The license of the nobles was not the only enemy with which Frederick had to contend. The Saracens had established themselves in Sicily soon after the death of Charlemagne, and had retained their hold of the western mountains in spite of the continued efforts of the Norman kings to dislodge them. They had always been a disturbing element in the island. They continually ravaged the adjacent territories, practiced piracy, and were always ready to aid a Christian rebel against the reigning monarch. Frederick took the field in person against them in 1222 and inflicted a heavy defeat upon their forces. Their emir was hanged on a gibbet at Palermo, and the wild tribes were forced to leave their mountain fastnesses and dwell in the plains. A further measure was executed which reveals the bold quality of his statesmanship and recalls the measures of the tyrants of Grecian history. Twenty thousand of their ablest fighting men, henceforth to become his own soldiers, were transported to the mainland and settled at Lucera in the broad plains of Apulia. The city was emptied of its Christian inhabitants and repeopled with infidels. The cathedral was turned into a mosque, and a mighty castle whose ruins still endure was built to overawe the new colony. Such a daring innovation, such a vast undertaking, conceived and executed in so lordly a manner, and so lofty a disregard of the religious prejudices of the day, called forth a gasp of astonishment throughout Europe and a shiver of pious horror from the ecclesiastics. A shocked remonstrance from the Pope was met by a most plausible argument. We can imagine a sly smile on Frederick's lips as he dictated the excuse to his secretaries. The emperor, he said, was compelled to wage many wars in which numbers of the soldiers must die. It were surely better that Moslems, whose souls and bodies were of less consequence than those of Christians, should be employed in these wars, than that Christian blood should be shed. The specious explanation was accepted by Honorius. The wisdom of the measure was undoubted. In Sicily, the Saracens were a constant menace to the royal authority. Isolated in Apulia, they became the emperor's loyal warriors, who would serve him against all enemies, and were not affected by the papal curses and maledictions which Frederick later incurred. The remnant of the infidels remaining in the island thus weakened in their fighting strength, and overawed by such masterful measures, 
gradually resigned themselves to good behavior. One or two outbreaks afterwards occurred, but by the year 1226 the taming process was complete. The ordering of his disturbed kingdom and the constant journeyings and expeditions it entailed left Frederick little time for rest and recreation. Nevertheless, he was able to snatch brief periods of leisure when he would hunt the wild boar or pass his days in luxurious idleness and cultured ease. His court was attended by many great nobles from Germany, northern Italy, and his southern kingdom, and many distinguished crusaders would break their homeward voyage and pay their respects to the emperor, who was always ready to entertain them with lavish hospitality. An amusing legend throws some light on the character of the court, which was evidently not remarkable for puritanical sobriety of morals. The famous St. Francis came to Bari, where Frederick was sojourning, and preached a denunciatory sermon against the vices of the emperor and his court. The sin of licentiousness was especially condemned. Frederick received the reproof with perfect good humor, but determined to satisfy himself with regard to the reputed asceticism of the saint. Francis was therefore invited to supper and afterwards led to a sleeping chamber wherein to pass the night. At midnight, a lady of light virtue but remarkable charms was introduced into his rooms and commenced to exercise all the blandishments of her profession to induce him to descend from his pedestal of sanctity. The contest was unequal, however, for the friar was aided by supernatural powers and put the temptress to flight with a fiery shield. Frederick, who with his courtiers had witnessed the scene through convenient chinks in the wall, was thoroughly convinced by this proof, apologized to Francis for his skepticism and the practical joke it had inspired, and spent some hours in spiritual discussion with his saintly guest. End of section 7